Good morning, Terra family, both here and online. Um, good to be together and, and uh, have a chance to be able to worship together and be in God's Word together and hear His truth this morning. Uh, before we jump right into God's Word, always helps to turn off your Wi-Fi on your iPad so you're not getting texts and emails while you're trying to preach. That's my bad, not my wife's. Um, she wasn't texting me in the middle of the sermon. It was a delayed email that popped up on my screen. Um, there are times and occasions, and probably we don't highlight them, I don't highlight them enough, where what's going on in our world needs to make it into a conversation at the front end um, uh, or, or during our time of worship. Um, many or all of you know of the conflict that's going on over in the Ukraine and Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, and I, I think for, for each of us, it's probably been something different, but the gravity of that situation really struck me when I found out that this is the largest invasion in a European country since World War II. So let that sink in. Um, there, there are hardships and suffering of all kinds going on all over the world that are worthy of our intercession and prayer, but this is one I want to bring before us because we have a unique opportunity as we're gathered to intercede as God's people in prayer for that situation. Um, aside from what you're hearing on the news, um, I, I have a little bit I can share to you just about the, uh, the, the church over there and kind of bring us to this grounded place of realizing just as we're here as God's people serving, God's people are over there too in the Ukraine and in those surrounding countries seeking to support the Ukraine, uh, even in Russia. Um, and uh, we are, have historically had roots in a, in a church planning network called Acts 29. We were kind of grandfathered in from Terra Nova Troy, became an autonomous church, and are now going through the process of becoming an Acts 29 church ourselves. Acts 29 is a church planting network uh, that has uh, hundreds, I, th I think we have five or 600 churches in the United States, but it's a global church planting network, and we have churches in the Ukraine and in some of those surrounding countries. Uh, we've, I've heard just yesterday, within the last 24 hours, a couple of stories. One was a, of a pastor who's, uh, I can't remember the name of the town, it's about uh, 100 miles or 100 kilometers removed from the border of Russia and near Kiev, and he actually uh, sought to, to get his family out of his town, so he removed them to a safer part of the country and then returned to serve his people and his community, and actually the people from Acts 29 who know him haven't been able to get a hold of him for the last few days. It doesn't mean something's necessarily happened to him, but there's this reality in which life as they knew it over there has been upturned and, and sole focus is upon the situation at hand. There's another pastor um, in, I think it's Belarus, um, Acts 29 pastor, who has been making trips, shuttling people back and forth, refugees from the Ukraine, back into his community, into his own home, into the homes of the people from his church. And so the church is at work, God's people are at work, and they need our prayer, as do the people at large and leaders. Um, and so would you just spend a moment or two praying with me this morning for that situation? Father, we want to start off by just acknowledging your sovereignty. You are in control. Think of Revelation chapter 19. Salvation and glory and power belong to you, for your judgments are, are true and are just. Father, we know that all power resides with you and that your judgments are true and are just, and you will bring your judgment upon those who are at fault for um, bringing about suffering and evil in that part of the world. So we we find some sort of peace in that assurance. At the same time, we recognize the fact that there's real suffering and real responsibility 
real suffering on the part of those who are right in the thick of this conflict from those who are in harm's way, and real responsibility that you've given your people who are over there, the church, um, to come alongside those in need. So I pray that you would equip them by the power of your, your Holy Spirit not to be afraid, but to be filled with faith, to be your arms and your feet in those places. Pray also, Father, for leaders as we read in Second or in First Timothy. We're told to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may uh, lead a peaceful life and a quiet life. We know that that isn't always your will and how it works out, but we nonetheless pray that way, Father, that you would give, um, first of all, just an abiding peace in the leaders who are uh, behind this invasion uh, into the Ukraine. Uh, Lord, work in their hearts your peace that they might remove themselves from there, that there might be a resolution to this conflict that is totally you. It would have to be. Father, I pray that you would give wisdom to those leaders in high positions who are seeking um, to do what is just, even if unwittingly, to be extensions of your arms of justice and peace. Give them wisdom and mobilize them to bring about a, a resolution. And Father, I pray that through all of this, you would be glorified, that you would use that conflict to bring about um, a greater awareness of your presence and your sovereignty and your goodness and of the salvation that you make possible through Jesus Christ. Please give us, Father, a sensitivity at the very least to know how to pray and if there's anything else that we can do to be extensions of your goodness and your glory and of the gospel, show us and lead us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, we're going to be finishing our series, a six, seven-week series we've been in, The Promises of God. Um, and listen, it's not that there's only six or seven promises. There are many, many, many more. This is just scratching the surface of the things that we could have meditated on together. Today, we're going to be finishing with the promise that God makes to restore us. A promise that has to be right now, I am sure, being leaned into and treasured and precious, especially to those over in the Ukraine and the church there. We all want restoration. We all want for this. We may not call it restoration, but we all long for things to be a certain way, don't we? That is the source of our discontent oftentimes. Even if we're not consciously thinking, we wish things were another way. We, we long to be healthy and whole, mentally and physically. We long to be loved. We long to have true, deep relationships, to, to know others and to be known especially by others. We long for our pain, physical or emotional, to be removed, to go away. We, we long to return to some point at which we knew joy and happiness in life before it became as complicated or as difficult as it may be now. We long to see an end to strife and violence, if not globally, then even imminently for some of us in our relationships and our family and with our friends around us. We long for these things. Now again, our, our longing we may not actually call or title restoration. Restore is an interesting word because it connotes, on the one hand, there's something better, but at a deeper level, it also connotes that that something better has already existed. It pre-existed. That longing is rooted in a reality that you and I know as Christians. Um, 
in a true fact of history, that there was a time and a place where things were good. God actually said, very good. And we long for things to be returned to that state. We read about that in the first pages of your Bible. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we read the story of how God created this world, and in each scene after he's finished creating something, he called it good. And that's not on a relative scale like we might call things good today. It was pure. It was perfect. It was as he intended. It was the way things were supposed to be. In Genesis 3, one chapter later, we read about how sin corrupted all that and how God's good creation was disrupted by sin. Now, often the definition that we use appropriately, I think, for sin is falling short of the glory of God, which just means when mankind no longer is imaging, showcasing to the world around us the character and virtue of our God, no longer showcasing the glory of God. That's what's visibly seen externally, okay? But another way to think about sin is more internally, Sin's inception was at the absence of trusting God. Sin was Adam and Eve thinking that they knew better than God, that there was another truth than what God was telling them. This is what happens in the unseen realm of our hearts, which then becomes visible and seen outwardly. We make a choice that's rooted in unbelief like Adam and Eve did, and it manifests itself in something less than or which falls short of the glory and goodness of God. And of course, a part of that story is that while Adam and Eve were fully culpable for their unbelief and for their sin, there were external pressures, external temptations at that time, an enemy of God that we know as Satan or the devil, who appeared in the form of a serpent and put forward the temptation before Adam and Eve that maybe, just maybe, God was holding out on them. And they bit. And so a part of what was broken with the fall is trust is believing that God knows best. And if that's true, if God really does know what's best, then living outside of his will can only result in something that is less than good, than very good. There was another part that was broken with the fall, and that was creation itself. Somehow, in ways we don't fully understand, sin became infectious. The Bible tells us all creation groans now and is in the bondage of decay, Romans chapter 8. Even things that are incapable of sin, trees and rocks and animals, some of that is due to mismanagement on our part because we've lost touch with what it means to exercise dominion and stewardship over this creation that God has given us. There's a forgotten knowledge of the way that things were supposed to be taken care of. And then some of it couldn't be helped no matter what we do, like the diseases that plague many of our bodies. Some, in other words, of the brokenness of this world is a direct consequence and result of our sin. But a lot of our human suffering is really the initial ripple effect of that first sin, bringing about hardships and suffering that aren't even directly things that we're responsible for anymore. Things like disease and death and natural disasters and so on. And so just pages into our Bible, we see how something was lost that God called good and there's a desire to return there now that's a deep ache in our souls. That is a desire for restoration. 
It's a desire to see God act on this promise that he will restore things to the way that they once were. And God, being who he is, doesn't leave us without that hope. Even in the immediate aftermath of the fall, we read in Genesis chapter 3, a promise that God makes to Eve, the mother of all living, that there would be a descendant of hers who would bruise his heel in the process of crushing the head of the serpent who had tempted Adam and Eve to begin with. We know that that offspring was none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ, born of Mary, who himself suffered on the cross. That was his bruised heel, believe it or not, but rose from the dead and in so doing proved he had all authority over life and death and crushed the head of Satan, the adversary, of God. And while we haven't seen, of course, this promise in its full fullness yet, what Jesus accomplished in his death and resurrection means that the promise of life being restored is as good as done through Jesus Christ. Even if that hasn't been fully realized yet, it will be. And the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth that God promises. And so what I want to do here briefly is first jump ahead. Consider briefly that glorious time, that promise that God makes where things will be fully restored. Talk about that promise. Look at the passage where maybe that's clearer than any other place in the scriptures and consider for a moment what that will be like. And then the second thing I want to do is come back to the present tense and consider the implications for what it means to experience restoration now, because it's not just for them in the future. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, and we'll just look at the first five verses of that book, or of that chapter. Revelation 21, and you're welcome to follow along on the screen behind me as well. While you're finding your place, the context for this book uh, is that it's called apocalyptic literature. Okay, apocalypse, not necessarily in the contemporary sense that culture may have influenced our understanding where it's the end of the world because a comet hit us or something like that. Uh, I can see how we would get there, but, but truly, it, biblically speaking, when we're talking about apocalyptic literature, it's a form of literature in which there's a revelation from God to his people that has to do with future events or the end times, particularly Jesus' return and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. So John is the author of this book. He was one of Jesus' apostles, actually the only one, I believe, that uh, we understand not to have been martyred for his faith, not that he had it easy. He was probably writing this book from the island of Patmos, where he had been exiled to because of his faith. And so he's, uh, he's receiving this vision, he's instructed to write these things down, and he's recording what he sees and what, he's hear, and what he hears along the way. And here in this scene we're about to read, it's most likely God the Father who is speaking and addressing him because we're told that a voice proceeds from the throne. And he makes this beautiful declaration of what complete restoration is going to mean and is going to look like for us one day. So here's what John records in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice 
from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Three things that we can learn from, and I want to point out from this passage in Revelation 21 about God's promise to restore. Number one, God will restore everything fully to the way that it was at creation, and those who are in Christ will be there for it and for all of eternity. God will restore everything physically and emotionally. We see these two categories through all these examples that he's given. Death will be no more. Pain will be no more. So physical suffering will no longer exist. God will restore everything emotionally. He'll restore our souls. Tears will be wiped away. Mourning will be no more. Crying will be no more. And who is it that we are told will be there to experience that? Verse 3, his people. Now, it doesn't say here explicitly, but the rest of the New Testament defines who his people are. They are not, though, those who through their own good deeds and works somehow earn favor with God. They are not those who happen to be in the right lineage or the right family or a part of the right nationality. But we are made adopted sons and daughters of God by faith, by trusting God and in his provision of forgiveness through Christ. If you weren't with us earlier in this series, you can go back and listen to the promise he forgives. So anyone, anyone who is in Christ has this hope that God will restore future everything to the way that he intended them to be that we saw back in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2. And by the way, this is kind of an aside, but one that just struck me and strikes me every time I think about it that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes conveys more than just hitting a reset button, conveys more than just us being computer programs that can somehow have our memories deleted and we start over. It conveys an action on the part of a loving parent. God himself will offer such consolation to you and such comfort to you in your deepest areas of sorrow that you'll have no need to cry over these things anymore. And he'll do that in part by showing you how even the most tragic and painful circumstances of your life he used to bring about a greater good than would have even been possible. I think, by the way, that that's really what Romans 8, 28 is all about. That God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Yes, it can foster faith. We have to trust faith that God is good now, even through the suffering. But one day our faith will be sight and we will see the fulfillment of this promise, how God worked all things for good, and our tears will turn to worship. And if that seems impossible, I think that's the point. We don't worship what we understand, what's like us, But one day we will be able to see how God did what we thought never could have been possible, what we could not have imagined, where he redeemed the most unredeemable of circumstances in your life. And your your 
tears will be no longer necessary because you'll see things from God's perspective and you'll worship instead. So we have that to look forward to because there's a guarantee here that God will fully restore things one day in this way. But that leads me to the second observation, and that is this. From this passage, we we learn God has already begun that work. We don't have to wait until eternity to see the beginnings of that restoration. God has already begun the work of restoration now for those who are in Christ. Now certainly the context of this particular passage and even this whole book very much is about eternity in view. But notice how God talks about restoration here. He doesn't talk about it in the future sense. He doesn't say, I will make everything new. He talks about it in the present tense. I am making all things new. I am, currently. That's not by accident. Through our faith in Christ, restoration begins now. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, Paul says. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17. 1 Corinthians 4.16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. I know it can be discouraging when we don't see renewal and restoration in greater ways in some areas of our life. Areas of suffering, areas of physical pain, emotional wounds, certain patterns of sin and struggle that you're experiencing and going through. I don't want to be dismissive of that. But what I do want to do is to encourage you to focus on what has already been made new in your life. Because those things are the down payments that God has given you to look to to have an assurance that one day he will make all things new. It can be so easy to experience God restoring us in certain areas, freedom from certain sin patterns, a softening of our heart, mending relationships, a deeper love we start to experience for others, a deeper understanding of God's truth that only he could have given us. Those things happen, but then there's that one area of your life where your struggles and your, your suffering are most acute, most painful. And as that persists, it causes us to overlook the other areas that God has already brought restoration in our life. And it brings discouragement. So understand, there's certainly a now and a not yet component to this promise that God will restore. So use the places God has brought renewal in your life, even if they seem small. Don't dismiss them. Don't overlook them. Go back to them like memorials in your life to remind them of this truth, to strengthen your faith, that all the rest that you long for to be restored will follow, even if it takes one day longer than eternity, than a lifetime. Hopefully not than eternity. That'd be a really long time. Probably shouldn't even correct it since only two people laughed. I'm saying cling to those places in your life where God has shown you he is the God of restoration and use them as the launch pad to trust that the rest will follow. Third and last observation I want to offer you from this text. The fundamental agent, the primary agent of restoration in the life of God's people is God's word empowered by God's spirit. And we see that right in this text and in other places in the Bible. If it was a departure from the truth that led to the fall to begin with, then it's a return to the truth empowered by God's spirit that he will use to bring about the restoration of all things. 
I love how verse five ends. To me, it's both funny and has profound implications at the same time because what we read is God is speaking once again to John and he says, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Understand John, at the beginning of this letter, had already been told to write these things down that he was hearing and that he was seeing, but here he has to be reminded to get back to work. Even some of the commentators that I I read remarked that apparently John was so astounded at what was being said that he had to be reminded to write them down again. He got distracted, which who can blame him? He was in a moment of worship and awe. Here's why that's important and why that's profound. What was the reason that it was so important that John write these things down, that God didn't allow him to be distracted and not record the things that he was saying to him? Because God begins the process of renewal in our lives and in his people through his word empowered by his spirit, through the truth, through becoming acquainted with and aware of and allowing the truth to abide in your hearts once again. The very thing that left in the Garden of Eden. This passage of Scripture, to me, recently in my reading of the Bible, has become one of the most authoritative and clear and direct reminders that God intends for his word to be the primary source of renewal in your life. Or else, why would he have had John write it down? It just makes sense. If the absence of trusting God is the essence of what sin is, and the, abundant, and, the ab- and the absence of trusting God looks like a departure from the truth, and it would be a return to the truth, a steeping in God's word that he would use to restore you and I, and ultimately his creation. This idea echoes throughout the rest of the Bible, uh, but it's probably most present in the Psalms. Goodness gracious, just read Psalm 119 sometime. But let me just give you one from Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The psalmist and God's people throughout the ages have been convicted of this fact. God's word empowered by God's spirit is what he uses to restore God's people. So the primary means by which God does his work of restoration now is by his word of truth applied to our hearts and minds by the power of his spirit. The question is, are we willing to avail ourselves of God's primary resource to bring about restoration in your life? What does that look like for you? Where are you putting yourself in the way of Jesus by being in his word? Are you? How can we afford not to be if this is truly what God wants to use to restore all things? I want to use this as as just a segue to actually talk about what renewal has and hopefully will look like in my own life. This past fall, for those of you who are here for our State of the Church message, uh, may have remembered that uh, one of the things that I had said is that I'm going to be going on a sabbatical from May through August of this year. Um, this is something that uh, is kind of built into the framework for pastors of the Terranova Network that once every seven plus or minus years or so, pastors are strongly encouraged to take a sabbatical. Um, this May 6th will actually be Uh, My 10th year at Terra Nova just hasn't really worked out for the last couple of years, but um, for a while now we've been planning for this summer. So what is a sabbatical? A sabbatical in its simplest form is an extended period of Sabbath rest. But I think the important thing that I've come to understand over the years, less an obedient practitioner of it, but certainly something that has been informing the way I've approached rest, rest isn't necessarily not doing work. Sabbath rest is actually doing the work of putting yourself in the way of Jesus so that he can renew and restore you. Sometimes that actually takes work. 
because we've been so deconditioned from going to him for what only he can provide. Um, For me, the occasions in my life that have been most transformative for me, probably no coincidence, are the times that I've been most steeped in his word, especially the times where there have been no strings attached to that. I've just been in his word to know him and to see him to grow in my relationship with him. Um, And I want to get back to that spot. Uh, There is a a curriculum, it's called the Person of Jesus Study, and it comes out of a ministry called uh, Seeing Jesus. Some of you may have heard of the name Paul Miller, an author, former pastor, who wrote lots of different books, a couple you may be familiar with, A Praying Life, A Loving Life. And one of the resources that they offer, and actually it's kind of interesting, they just, they have a beta version of of a sabbatical they just came out with, so I reached out to them and they're like, you want to be our guinea pig? And so... Uh, they have, it's going to be a three-month-long journey of um, me reading the Bible, primarily in the Gospels, to see Jesus as the three-dimensional person he is, to just be acquainted with him uh, as a person, and to deepen and develop that relationship with him, to fall in love with him all over again. And so I am I'm looking forward to that. Uh, um, I have the luxury of, of a mentor from that ministry who's going to be walking with me through that time. And, and so this is in part how I plan to steward my sabbatical. There are other components of it that considering my family's needs and what can be a blessing to them, but that's kind of the big spiritual component for me, and I'm really looking forward to that. And that flows out of my conviction that the Bible isn't primarily an instruction manual, as much as I've been guilty at times of treating it that way. It's not primarily a textbook that is to be used to teach others. It's a window that God has given you and I to peer at his face, to see him, to know him, to be changed by him. It's the pathway to relationship he's provided that leads to restoration. But it requires that we believe, as John says, it is trustworthy and true, or rather, as God said to John, it requires that we believe, as the psalmist said, that God's word is perfect, reviving the soul. I'll be sending an email this week, by the way, with a few more details about that sabbatical and um, the reason for it, and I would, of course, love for you to, to join me in my family just pray for us during that time. Um, We'd really appreciate that. And I trust that while uh, I look forward to connecting with Jesus more deeply on a personal level, that work of restoration that God brings about when we go to him, when we allow his word by his spirit to bring restoration, is going to overflow into my ability to pastor you guys better. So I look forward to that and ask for your prayers. We're going to continue in a time of worship, and we're going to celebrate communion as we do each week at Terra Nova. And for those who are more unfamiliar with how we do that, sometimes we forget to say, and then we have a lot of people from different backgrounds who, you know, want to grab the cup, and it's, oh, I'm sorry, we forgot to explain how we do it here. So at Terra Nova, we'll have a couple of people who are standing at the front to serve you, uh, the broken pieces of matzah representing Christ's body broken for you. And you can take one of those pieces and you can dip that into the wine or the juice uh, representing Jesus' blood shed for you as they speak the truth of the gospel that communion symbolizes over your life. So as we consider what communion represents this morning, as we try to do each week as we close, what we see, number one, consequences of our sin are on full display when we understand what it is that happened to Jesus. Jesus endured for us the emotional pain of the abandonment of his friends, even of his father as he hung on the cross. 
He endured the emotional pain of the sense of isolation that came from being the only one who could bear the burden that he bore for us. The emotional pain of the wounds of his own people rejecting him and the shame and humiliation in how he was treated, all for us. And he also experienced the brutal physical pain of the suffering that came, in, that came along with hanging on an instrument of torture for us. And so he knows your suffering well, emotionally and physically. He can empathize with you, but more than that, his suffering and death had the power to overturn the effects of your and my sin. And so communion points us to the hope of restoration that is yours and that is mine in Christ and in what he has done for us. So let's pray and give him thanks and continue our time of worship together. Father, thank you for being such a gracious, kind, and good God to have made us um, good and to have made a good, a very good world for us to come to know you and be in relationship with you, and we squandered that. We still do on a daily basis, and yet for reasons we can't fully explain, but move our hearts, compel our hearts on our best days to love and worship of you. You move toward us. You pursue the lost sheep. We thank you for that. It's not, though, that you just saved us even. To have an eternity with you, you promised to restore us, to restore us now. And maybe some of that will have to wait till eternity, but there's a promise that one day you will restore it all. And somehow in ways we can't fully understand or imagine yet, you'll even take the most difficult, most tragic, most painful things we and those we love have endured, and you will show us how you use those things for good and wipe away our tears. Oh Lord, let that sink in. Just file down the callous places of our heart to be able to see the beauty of your truth this morning, the truth that you use to restore us. We pray these things in Christ's name.